government showed how fast it could spend money when the Congress printed trillions for pandemic relief. Well, now it's the morning after. My next guest led a nationwide criminal investigation that so far has clawed back more than a billion dollars, anyway, awarded to frauds under the Paycheck Protection Program and prevented maybe twice that much from going out in the first place. He's an assistant special agent in charge of the Secret Service in Jacksonville, Florida, and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Roy Dotson joins me now. Mr. Dotson, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. And how does this fall under, just to put this in the government pantheon, Homeland Security, uh, Secret Service versus, say, the Small Business Administration? Is that because of Secret Service's history of money investigation and money stewardship? Yes, You know, we were founded originally to combat counterfeit currency back in 1865. Since that date, we are heavily involved in the investigation of financial crimes. Uh, Most people obviously know us as protecting the president or the vice president or heads of state, but we are heavily involved in cyber crime. And it just so happens that annually we work these types of programs where U.S. government funds, state funds, as in unemployment benefit programs, They suffer fraud and loss, and we look into those cases. And tell us about how this investigation was structured. I imagine it was an interagency affair led by Secret Service, and what kind of resources did you marshal to be able to begin to even know where to look for fraud? Well, you know, like you said early on, shortly after the CARES Act started to be distributed, we started seeing fraud and hearing that from the financial sector The Secret Service works closely with our banks and third-party payment systems. In our job, we tried to safeguard the U.S. financial infrastructure, and in that, we developed these relationships with the financial sector. They started to call us to tell us that they thought they were seeing a lot of fraud. We started looking into that. At the initial, it started out as unemployment. We thought we were really getting hit, and we were getting hit in the unemployment insurance benefit program. That quickly migrated to the Small Business Administration loans, whether that was PPP or IDA loans. We quickly, again, partnered with Small Business Administration Office Inspector General and with the Department of Labor to start working jointly on looking into these cases and what we could do to really to stop the bleeding at the outset, and then now go back and really look into these cases as far as criminal investigations. So in many ways, your eyes and ears, your whistleblowers, if you will, on the ground were the financial institutions close to where the fraud was taking place. Yes. This case, or I'll say our national investigation, started from a bank investigator at a very small credit union in Florida who saw a customer received multiple payments from the state of Washington, unemployment payments. And that was the first call that kind of set off, you know, the warning. And we started looking into it more heavily. And as he drove off in his new Maybach, that really made things more suspicious looking, I suppose. But this was a nationwide investigation, even though it touched off in Florida where you are located, you really were overseeing something coast to coast. Yes. Again, I think quickly realizing that this could be national or even international and the scope of it. The Secret Service has over 44 cyber fraud task forces across the world. And our Global Investigation Operations Center oversees all of our field offices, which is, I think, encompasses almost 160 plus field offices across the world. We quickly got together, formulated an investigative plan 
got the word out to those offices to start coordinating with not only SBA and DOL, but also with their financial institutions within their communities to see what was going on and what we could do to help. We're speaking with Roy Dotson. He's an assistant special agent in charge of the Secret Service and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And were you able to discern patterns? Uh, Did you look at databases and so forth to reveal where fraud might be taking place geographically or what form it might take commonly? Well, you know, these benefit programs, it wasn't a real sophisticated crime as far as on the front end. Um, It was merely an online application where you needed very little information about yourself or another individual. You submitted that application. Those funds were quickly distributed. You know, there's no doubt that Congress and the states were looking to help people that were in dire straits, and they wanted to get those funds out quickly. It's been widely discussed that some parameters were lowered, some uh, guardrails were lowered, I think is the actual term to allow that to happen with good intentions. But unfortunately, our international, our transnational organized groups, even our domestic organized criminal groups took advantage of that and started to attack the program with literally hundreds of thousands or if not millions of fraudulent online applications. How do you decide which ones are the ones you're going to nail and prosecute and try to get the money back from among that volume of possibly fraudulent transactions? So we start looking, like you brought up earlier, data, you know, anything today has massive data with literally billions of data points involved in in these online applications and just the processing of them. We have to weed through those to to find the most egregious cases. You talked about, you know, people that buy the Maybach or people that buy the yacht or the, the residents at Disney. So those stand out, of course. And then also going through that data and looking at organized groups, we want to target those people that aren't just your one-off application or somebody just trying to take advantage of the problem. We want to look at organized criminal groups that have a tendency to do this type of fraud and really go after them and to try to circumvent what they're doing. Because they don't just do pandemic fraud, obviously. This was just a crime of opportunity. They do the normal business email compromises, the ransomwares, the romance scams. And the other thing that I will say, you know, there's also groups that are known to do different types of violent crime, um, whether that's drug distribution, human trafficking. And some of those took advantage of these programs to help fund those activities. So it's not just a white collar financial crime that we're talking about. It has truly impacted people or could impact people on a personal level. Basically, then you had to almost prioritize the cases. And if it was just some small owner that got $50,000 he didn't deserve, that's not good. But you really wanted to get to the organized and the large dollar volume ones to get the most bang for the buck that you had in terms of resources. Yes. And, you know, working with SBA OIG and with DOL OIG and then the states, you know, they're going to look to go back to maybe those that for some reason, whether fraudulently or not, obtained funds in a smaller amount, and they're going to request those back and hopefully work that out. But, you know, there's just too many cases for us. There's not enough investigators across the federal, state, local community to investigate each and every one of these cases. Yes. So we're going to prioritize and go after groups, the organized groups. And in getting money back, what did that require? It sounds like you would have to raid a place perhaps or indict someone. I mean, what's the mechanism to get that billion point two 
back to the government? Well, there's a couple different ways. One of the main ways is, uh, you know, like I brought up earlier, working with the financial sector as part of our initial investigation. We worked with FinCEN, the Treasury Department, to get out notifications to the financial sector, giving them fraud indicators for the different types of fraud, whether that was unemployment or SBA, which they could then utilize to watch for those type of activities within their accounts. They could then investigate and voluntarily hold those funds and then contact us, which they did. And they did an outstanding job of safeguarding literally billions of dollars, reaching out to us. And then we go through the legal process of recovering that with a seizure warrant. We also had many, many thousands of investigators as part of this investigation that were in the field going out and interviewing individuals that received funds that were considered to be fraudulent, worked with those individuals, whether that was, again, with a seizure warrant or with them voluntarily returning those funds to the government. And is the investigation ongoing? And do you have any sense or in your own mind as to what the outer limits of how much bad money went out? Well, that is the question I get all the time. It is obviously very much in the continuing stages. You know, we're at the point now where we're really deep diving into the data to develop those criminal leads. So we are working those cases. We are also, you know, as I spoke to Congress a couple of weeks ago, and I get this question and my my colleagues, uh, the Inspector General at SBA and DOL get this question all the time. Do we know how much fraud? I can say this, that we know it's substantial. It's multi-billions. They are working to determine the actual dollar amount now per Congress's request, but it's substantial. And this is not going to be a, a short-term fix. This is going to take you know, five to 10 years of investigation, at least, to try to get through most of these cases. And understanding the mechanisms by which this fraud occurred, is there any way that this information is being fed back to future distribution systems or in some ways tightening the rules on other benefits programs that are ongoing and not related to the emergency, just simply so the government can start getting after some of those improper payment perennial problems that it has? Well, yes, I think we've all learned a lot after this experience. I will say that we could have safeguarded a lot of funds on the front end if there was just some basic cyber protections in place, some updated software, better identification tools. And I think out of this, the Department of Labor, the statewide workforce agencies, SBA, They've all learned and, and, you know, several other benefit programs have all learned that they needed to update, which they have updated their software and their their uh, identification mechanisms in order to catch it on the front end. I believe the uh, inspector general for the PRAC recently spoke about that, that, you know, again, billions of dollars could have been saved on the front end if we just took a minute, um, made sure that we were ready to do that. So I think. I know and I'm confident that the next natural disaster or heaven forbid another pandemic will do a much better job in distributing these benefits and protecting those funds for the U.S. taxpayer. Roy Dotson is an assistant special agent in charge of the Secret Service. He's from Jacksonville, Florida, and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. 
Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, 
that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.